Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview member of Knesset Aida Thomas-Suleiman from Hadash Party in the Joint List. She serves as the chairman of the Committee for the Advancement of Women and Gender Equality in the 24th Knesset. Aida, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. I know how busy you are, so I really appreciate us being able to find some time to meet and chat with you. I think you have a very fascinating story. As an Arab woman, I always found you as an inspiration for a variety of reasons. And I think your story will be valuable for a lot of people to hear, you know, outside of controversial politics or, you know, uh, all the um, stuff that you have to deal with on a daily basis. Uh, so Aida, I was wondering if we could start by maybe talking a little bit about your activism before you decided to join the Knesset. I was wondering kind of what led you to eventually decide to join uh, the Knesset, run with Hadash? What kind of activism did you work on? When did you start defining yourself as an activist? Well, first of all, uh, let me thank you Anwar, for uh, having me in this uh, interview. It's always a pleasure to give time to speak to young women whom I um, admire also your uh, willingness to be in a strange uh, country uh, in order to assume your uh, uh, hope and your dream and I can tell that you are doing very fine there. So um, I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you. I never decided to uh, uh, define myself as an activist. It's not a decision you make. You just, you find yourself doing things because you don't like a situation. You don't believe that it should be like this. You want to have a different uh, world around you and you just do things and uh, actually it's people who de- who decided to define me as an activist not myself i'm active that's true i'm very active actually and uh, as lo- as far as i remember myself i was always active doing something trying to change things around me uh even when i was at school, um, high school, university, later on um, in the political life and in um, uh, social issues that I believe are affecting my life as a woman, as a Palestinian, as an Arab in uh, the state of Israel, citizen of the state of Israel. So I just found myself being active, that's it. And I mean, I do understand, and I, I, you know, I feel it that you sometimes don't have a choice but to become an activist, right? Because we don't live in a privileged life that allows us to ignore inequality and injustices, which makes a lot of sense. So, could you tell me a little bit about the work you did or you're still doing on women's issues? I saw that you're chairing the committee on the advancement of the status of women again. I can't remember the full title, uh, but you also had, you worked on women's issues before that, um, and you do identify as a feminist, correct? Uh, well, the beginning was uh, right after um, 
I got to the university, actually, I, I can't say that I was aware to the situation of women in my society as I'm coming from a family where we were uh, seven girls. And as seven sisters with parents who were not privileged, were not even coming from a high socioeconomic situation. Uh, on the contrary, uh, my parent, my mother was what we call a woman working in her house. And uh, my father was a worker, a constructing uh, a worker. And uh, our uh, socioeconomic situation was, uh, we can say, I and mean, not even uh, uh, mid-class, even lower than mid-class, you can say a hardworking uh, family, but they believed, especially my father, in education. Mm -hmm. I remember he used to tell us always that um, a land they can confiscate and the house they can uh, demolish and uh, money you can spend, but uh, your education will always be with you and no one can take it from you. Whenever you feel, uh, even if you are relocated, if you are in a different country, your education will help you to stand up and to continue. So he believed uh, uh, very much in us and he wanted to support us in all what we are doing. I've never felt that uh, there are limitations for me as a girl at that point. Um, and so I didn't notice that there was discrimination until I got to the university and started uh, uh, also to be active, let's say, in the political life in the campus. And uh, I still remember one day it hit me when um, uh, we were trying to nominate uh, um, part of us or some of us to be leading the students committee. And someone suggested me to be heading the list who will be running in those elections. And there was a discussion internally inside our group and the young men in the group, the other students say that, but it won't work because, you know, I'm a woman. And uh, it hit me for the first time, someone reminded me that I'm, I'm a woman and that should be a deficit for me. That uh, uh, should limit my ability to lead or to do something. And of course, every day you can have those moments when they remind you that you are less because you are a woman. I think that uh, I was active for the rights of women since that time. Uh, but when uh, I uh, re relocated from Nazareth to Aka uh, Acre after my uh, marriage, uh, I was active with a, a group of uh, young women who all were uh, young mothers, could not find solutions or nurseries for our children in the uh, city of Akka at that point. I'm talking about like 32 years ago. So we decided to start a nursery so that we can uh, practice our uh, career or jobs 
the way we want and to be sure that our uh, children are in good hands. And that was the first project, uh, let's say, a very clear project that I worked with other uh, women. And we started the first nursery in the old city of Akka uh, that we ran together, starting from knitting the curtains and the uh, toys until uh, running, actually having the staff and, and having the nursery. During uh, those evenings when we were working and preparing, uh, part of us, uh, as, there was um, a woman in the uh, group who was a lawyer and uh, other was a social worker. And uh, suddenly the lawyer told us a story about one of her um, clients who was uh, trying to get a divorce for six months. And uh, in, one, in just two days before we met, she told her that, ah, yes, he used to be violent to me. And it was uh, stunning for us. It was like very shocking that six months she met with her lawyer uh, trying to prove that she needs to get a divorce. And she didn't think that uh, violence in that relationship is a good reason that she should mention. And it was shocking for us also the fact that it, uh, it sounded like when we started to bring some uh, stories about women, we knew that they were facing violence, but they accepted the fact that they were facing violence and they were not trying to do anything about it because it was accepted in the society somehow. That's when we decided to start talking about the issue of gender-based violence. At that point, we didn't even that it is called gender-based violence. I didn't today, um, after 32 uh, years, uh, everybody relate to me as an expert on the issue, but I, I'm telling you, I didn't know anything at that point. Uh, I did uh, today. I can tell you there's economics, so a psychological, physical, sexual violence. At that point, we I didn't even knew that. It just uh, made made me so angry. The fact that someone believed that he have the right to be violent to his wife or to his sister and think that life can continue as normal after being violent. And uh, that's how we started with an organization called Women Against Violence. I was among uh, other six women uh, where we uh, established this organization. Uh, we didn't know how far we are going to go, but we knew that we want to break the silence around gender-based violence. And we want to give some kind of help to the women and support to the women. If you have asked me at that point, uh, either do you think that you uh, faced any kind of violence in your life? Uh, probably I would tell you, and I, I used to be asked by many 
journalist? Why did you establish this organization? Is it coming from a personal experience? And I usually used to say, no way, no, nobody is, uh, I, I'm not facing any violence. And actually, yes, with my um, late husband, I, I had a good life and there was no uh, verbal or, or any kind of violence. But now I understand that there is no, I can't see even one woman who haven't gone through an incident of a kind of violence that has been practiced against her. All of us are facing violence in different ways and in different shapes. So this organization, we started in 1992, very quickly in uh, 1993, we established the first shelter, battered women shelter for Arab women, not only in Israel, but the first one in the world, actually. That was the first shelter ever run by Arab women for Arab women. And uh, in the same year, we established a, another shelter for young women in distress. That was, I think, a revolution at that point, because uh, nobody believed that, and a crisis center, we started a crisis center. Nobody believed that Arab women will ever leave their homes in order to come to um, a, a shelter and to speak up about the violence they are facing. These projects and others we, that we established through the years uh, are still running uh, till today. And actually they are, they had gave new life and uh, security for thousands of women through the years. Thank you, Aida. That's an amazing story. Um, I, I found your story uh, fascinating. I'm actually one of six, but I have four girls and two boys in the house. My parents, too. My dad never really went to high school. My mom finished high school, wanted to go to college, but, you know, she ended up getting married, you know, because uh, back then that's that was the norm. And uh, my mom, I remember she always said to me, your um, certificate is like, shahatik uh, is your like, um, it's a security, right? Uh, whenever something bad happens and I, that I hold with me until now, right? I mean, you also mentioned early on, I, you know, that I'm here outside of my homeland, which I do miss a lot. It's hard to get it out of you, right? Uh, it is because though, you know, I was, I'm able to do more here than I'm able to do there because of certain gender expectations about my role and what I can do, right? I can invest more time here in my career and I appreciate that, but I see developments and uh, progress happening slowly, but I see it happening, which is promising. I wanted to ask you, how did you, if, you know, move from working on women's issues specifically to joining Khadash and uh, the joint list later and then running for Knesset. A lot of people view this as controversial in general. You know, some people would say, oh, well, you're, you're in an Israeli government, you're legitimizing the Israeli government and occupation just by being there. And then some also, you know, as a woman, probably one of the first women uh, in uh, Knesset, you probably faced some challenges along the way. Well, I have to say, I, it wasn't a decision to become an MK. 
a member of Knesset. I've been active politically all of my life, even when I was at uh, high school. I think um, it's the normal thing to be uh, when you are living in a situation where you feel the multiple uh, discrimination on gender basis, on nationality basis, and as in general, as a citizen living in a country or in a state that is very much militarized, uh, very much chauvinist, not only discriminate against you, but also deal with you with a very racist approach toward you. I was active. And it was very clear for me that I should be part of Hadash, and not only Hadash, but also the Communist Party. As someone who is coming from, as I told you, a hard day working family, I it it always made me ask questions such like how my, how come my father works so hard, and still we don't have the money to do many things. How come there are people who are so rich? I I just felt it's not fair. It's not fair that my father, who is very uh, well-educated person at that time, meaning uh, finishing high school before 1948 uh, in a German school in Jerusalem, picking, uh, reading and writing five languages, and still has to work so hard to earn his living uh, for his uh, family. The fact that he was injured while working in construction and uh, my mother had for the first time in her life to think how to earn her living in order to support her injured husband and the seven girls she has at home uh, made me also ask about uh, many questions about classes and about economic uh, uh, situation uh, around me. So it was, I was raised also in a very special uh, uh, time where the Palestinians in the beginnings uh, of the 70s were uh, starting to uh, more and more be aware of the national identity and the fact that, uh, you know, after 1967 occupation of the uh, West Bank and Gaza, this reunification uh, in our people between the two sides of the Green Line uh, raised a lot of um, national uh, identity questions and made a lot of people uh, insist to be um, very active in uh, pluralizing a new way of uh, uh, coping or uh, of resistance, let's say, civil resistance to our situation as citizens of Israel, as Palestinian citizens of Israel, while Israel, the state we are citizens of, is occupying and oppressing our own people on the other side of the Green Line. So I became active politically in the university and uh, starting to search for uh, answers 
to all of those different layers of discrimination and of oppression, gender, nationality, citizenship, and others, and classes. So I was always, through my work in around 25 years running the Women Against Violence, I didn't stop even for one moment of being active uh, politically, if it is in the party or if it is in different uh, movements against occupation, against war, uh, for peace, uh, etc. Gender and politics are always, uh, you cannot separate gender from politics. And through that, I started also as a political activist in a very patriarchal, let's say, or at least male-dominated sphere, which is the political life. It was always amazing for me how come women are active politically, but never climbing up to the leadership. And that's how every time it was another glass ceiling that I wanted to break and to move on to another one and to another, to conquer more and more places, but insisting always not to be alone there. Usually I had in my resume uh, many titles of the first woman, of the first Arab woman to be in that position. But for sure, I will never agree to be the last woman there. I always try to, whenever I get to one uh, a position, to have more women with me in that. Thank you. And I really, uh, I think that's a great point that you to elevate others as you rise up the ranks. So I think I just want to take us back to the decision to participate in the Knesset, even though, you know, the accusation, you know, Israel is an occupying power, the, the, the whole power structure that is in place to maintain to maintain hierarchy of power, right? It's like one group is getting all the benefits and the other uh, is being um, is being oppressed for a variety of reasons and they use different excuses for why that happens. So why do you think engaging in like being a member of Knesset could be a beneficial way to uh, cause change and hopefully you know, have a two-state solution if that's what you think is the solution? <laughs> well, I have to say first that a lot of people see, and especially when I know that uh, maybe um, Americans will be listening to this, many people think about being part of uh, or being member of parliament. It's as if part of the establishment. And uh, I think our experience is different. Our experience is different as a minority living in Israel. For, for me, being a member in the Knesset is a representation of my own people and raising their voices. I don't see my membership as part of the establishment. Maybe on the contrary, I'm an opposition till today. I'm part of the opposition. I don't think that Till today, there is a government that I can be part of because all the, those governments are continuing, including this, the new government is including the politics of an occupying power toward our own people. I usually say 
even if I lived in a different country or if Israel was occupying a different people, I would have joined the uh, anti-occupation movement. Uh, it's not only because I'm a Palestinian, but on a human level, on a, a human rights level, or in, in, in my ideology, I cannot stand that. So being in the Knesset, you ask yourself every day, how I can bring to this very, uh, um, let's say, dominated by the majority establishment, a different voice. How you can shake the consensus that existing uh, uh, somehow and, and make everybody understand that you want to do a different politics, politics of peace, politics of human rights, politics uh, or protecting human rights, politics of uh, protect, uh, protecting gender equality, but not in a liberal way of gender equality, meaning I want to be equal to the man. No, I think that uh, what I'm trying to bring is a more complex uh, understanding of the situation or the gender relations in Israel, while looking also at the fact that when you live in an occupying power, uh, very much militarized, these values come deep into the uh, uh, culture that is existing. And the fact that I'm Palestinians, it's like being um, able to understand how this culture of militarization is affecting the different layers of the society. And I don't think that the, the Jewish men and the Jewish women are privileged, but not all of them on the same level of privileges. And we, we need to see that. They are all, if we compare them to the Palestinians inside Israel, they are privileged. But they are also, I, I think I have a rule also to let them understand that the uh, uh, values they are praising and they are uh, raising their children at uh, uh, is one tool of oppression used by the establishment against them. Mm -hmm. Raising their children to be blind and to go directly to serve in the army without asking questions and without uh, examining what role they are playing in this militarized machine, machine is also a different voice that I'm bringing with me to the Knesset. I, I still remember, you know, one, two months ago, I had um, a conference in the Knesset for uh, the, I don't know if you can say anniversary of occupation of the West Bank, where I said, um, since 1967 today, is it uh, between occupation and apartheid? And that was very shocking to everybody in the Knesset that I have the nerves to call Israel an apartheid. And uh, the fact that the media 
and the Knesset was busy for a whole week discussing how come I'm saying Israel is an apartheid or making this uh, uh, analogy between apartheid regime and what's happening in Israel, for me, that was enough like throwing a stone into a very silent uh, lake or, or water. And uh, that's what I'm trying to say, that my role, I, I see my role not to integrate in the existing situation, but to challenge the Knesset and the politicians every day. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. That was, uh, that was great clarifying kind of your vision and understanding of your role in the Knesset. So the question that I wanted to ask you too, now we have more Arab women in the Knesset. Uh, we also have Iman Khatib, right, which is the um, first and only uh, woman wearing the headscarf, right, in the Knesset. Of course, we know the differences now between the joint list and, uh, and her party. But um, what kind of specific challenges did you face working on the issues you work, right? I know, for instance, I always hear, oh, why do Arab MKs, uh, they're always, uh, you know, thinking about the occupation and Palestinians and they don't focus on what's happening to the people who voted for them, right? So that's kind of the, the narrative from the right wing side of Israeli society. Um, so what kind of, and we know that voting record indicates, you know, differently, but um, what kind of challenges did you guys face and are facing? You, of course, have more experience than a lot of the women uh, there, so you probably have a better idea of uh, the extent of the challenges and the best way to address them. Well, um, I think the fact that uh, we even in the uh, 23rd uh, Knesset, we had four uh, women, Palestinian women. Today we have four Palestinian women serving in the Knesset. Iman Khatib is in uh, uh, Ram, uh, which joined the government uh, or the coalition, let's say. We have also uh, an Arab uh, member with Merit's party, and we have another woman uh, in uh, Labour Party. And uh, I think this, um, uh, the fact, you know, uh, usually I say I hate when the feminist movement count heads how many women we have, you know. Some of the women sometimes can be uh, more damaging to the uh, women's rights than others. I'm not saying this at this point about the other three, but in general, I usually say we should count how many feminists there are in the Knesset and not how many women we have in the Knesset. Uh, but uh, this shows a variety of different approaches that uh, also among us, the Palestinian women, we have different approaches and we have different things. Uh, this myth that is uh, was actually uh, distributed and enhanced by the right wing that the Palestinian Arab MKs uh, never deal with the issues related to their people 
and they are only or to their constituency and they are always emphasizing the Palestinian issue. First of all, I'm not going to deny it. Yes, I emphasize the continuous occupation. I emphasize the fact that Israel is trying to annex the Palestinian lands and is oppressing the Palestinian people in, in the West Bank and, and still having a siege over Gaza. Because I believe it is, first of all, these are my people and I have to raise my voice on this issue. Second, because I think this is also damaging the Israeli society. And if I'm an, uh, an Israeli citizen, it's my duty to speak up on this issue. I cannot see myself not bringing this issue. When the thir third of the budget of the state of Israel is expended on occupation, militarization, settlement, it's my duty as a politician to say we deserve to have those budgets. I have no good education in many places in my community because we are not getting the budgets we are supposed to get and those budgets are going to the settlements, etc. So I'm not de denying this accusation. I'm very proud of it, let's put it this way. Second, it's, it's not true. As, as simple as this, if you follow the work we do in the Knesset, you can see that every day we are dealing with tens of issues related to the everyday life and civil rights that uh, our constituency is facing. We are dealing with the education issues, we are dealing with uh, health issues, we are dealing with gender issues, we are dealing with planning and housing uh, rights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The question is why they are insisting that we should be only dealing with these things. They are trying to make of us not politicians. They do not right wing or not even only the right wing you know uh, in israel those who are calling themselves left wing i don't know if they are very far from the center even of the political map ideologically i'm meaning in israel you call anybody who is saying two-state solution a left some of them are saying that because they want only to separate from the Palestinians. They don't want to see a majority or they don't want to see high demographic balance with the Palestinians. This is not a left-wing approach. This is a racist approach that is covered with a kind of leftist as if politics. So we are dealing and uh, anybody who look at my resume of, of legislation or things that I raise in the committee, this is my second time heading the uh, committee for, or chairing the committee, uh, Parliamentarian Committee for Advancement of Women. You can see that I'm dealing with the everyday life uh, and the issues relating to the everyday life of my constituency on a regular basis. So. Mm -hmm. This is the situation. This is part of the propaganda 
that I think is doing. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned when we talked, uh, you know, about challenges in uh, in the Knesset as women that we have a few Arab women in the Knesset with different views, right, on issues, and that represents diversity in Palestinian society inside of Israel. And uh, uh, that's maybe a good thing because they can't put us all in one box, right? But then the question that I have for you, do you think there's a wrong or a right way to be politically active? I don't know if there is a wrong way, but I know that when you are active politically, when you want to be a member of Knesset, you need to have a, an agenda. And there is a trend these days in politics to, to act as if it is a career, if it is a job, you need to do it. And they are talking about being professional when you are dealing with politics. I don't see it this way. You need a vision. You need an ideology as a measurement equipment that you measure every decision you are making. If you don't have an ideology, if you don't, I'm, I'm an old school uh, politician, still believing in ideologies, still believing in, uh, you, are, uh, you are there because you want to uh, make the world better on small issues and in big issues like uh, stopping the occupation, uh, searching for a solution to the um, so-called conflict we are living. I hate this uh, terminology. It's not a conflict. It's a continuous occupation. There are oppressors and there are people under oppression. And you have to change that uh, situation. I truly believe that people who want to be free, they will get their freedom at a certain point. On different times, you have different ways of resistance uh, to the occupation. Uh, some people, or not some people, you, I believe that I have a different role than any political activist, let's say Palestinian also, who is fighting the occupation in the West Bank. I have a different location, a different position, a different uh, uh, political uh, atmosphere that I have to act in it in order to bring uh, uh, an end to this occupation. I acted in the past in different uh, areas, including establishing um, a group of women called IWC, International Women Commission for uh, Just Palestinian-Israeli Peace, uh, which was uh, formed under the auspices of the United Nations. Uh, at that point, it was called UNIFEM. Today, it's UN uh, Women uh, Fund. And uh, uh, we were 20 Israeli women, 20 Palestinian women, and 20 international uh, women, uh, very high uh, uh, level uh, in politics, including um, pro uh, ministers uh, of uh, foreign ministers, uh, like the ex-foreign minister of Iceland, Vice Speaker of the House in South Africa, and many other women. I was counted among 
the 20 Israeli women. And uh, it was a, a little bit awkward as all of our life <laughs> to be part of the Israeli group, but at the same time, the Palestinian group feel you are part of it. And I tell, um, for my regret, this uh, group uh, was dismantled or we stopped to uh, meet when, uh, uh, during the war on Gaza in 2005, if I'm not wrong. So uh, we couldn't agree on our uh, position from that uh, war. And uh, I still remember that one of the Israeli women said to me, you have to decide on what side you are. If you are a Palestinian or an Israeli. And for me, that was the most anti-feminist approach that uh, I couldn't tolerate. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I do hear it when you say it's an awkward position. Um, you know, one time, like at the university, that's where I'm from. And of course, my citizenship is where they, when I was a, a PhD student, whenever I win an award or something, or they want to highlight the nationality, it would be Israeli, but you can't like cheer for that. It just, it's weird because you don't feel 100% true to who you are. But yeah, it, it is very awkward. I have a couple more uh, more questions and I don't want to take more of your time. I know you're super busy. So uh, maybe this question will sound funny after what you said about the peace group you you um, put together, you were a member of and then dissolved. Um, do you think the work that you do fall under what we consider peace activism or do you think maybe the world, the word itself is, a, is not as comfortable to use? It should be um, uh, a very nice definition a peace activist but when you see what they have done with the peace accords and how this word peace is used these days i prefer to say i'm anti-occupation activist because you say um the word was wish washed how you say it yeah yeah it was maybe overused and well, yeah it was wishy-washed <laughs> Overused. I think it was abused. The word was abused through the years. And uh, peace is a result that should come after solving the problem. And the problem is occupation. And without dealing with this and ending this, there won't be peace. Peace comes later. It's a situation, you know, some people say that peace is, when you ask them to define what is peace, they will tell you it's a situation where there is no war. I, I don't see it in this way. Peace for me is guaranteeing what is called human security for everybody on both sides. And human security is not the national security that usually is dealt in the agreements, in the peace agreements. Human security is way beyond that. That's why I'm saying at this point, the major problem is occupation and it is 
bringing an anti-peace or um, um, a no-peace situation. And without solving this, we will never reach at a certain point. Our problems are not going to end when the occupation is ended. But at least then we can start building a culture of peace and human security. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I'm kind of, I want to ask you this question, um, but you, you know, feel free to respond the way you want. What do you think, um, so we did talk about political activism, peace activism, the involvement in the Knesset, but of course, Mansour Abbas and Ram's party, um, they have their own understanding of what kind of engagement looks like, right? So what do you think of what is happening in the Knesset right now in regards to Brown's position on a lot of things and votes? Well, first of all, I think that um, this approach that is brought by uh, Mansour Abbas and Ram, it's not a new approach. It existed in the past uh, among our society and our society just rejected that over the years. There was between 1948 till uh, 70s, there were always Arab lists who joined the Israeli government. And we uh, learned in the very difficult way that it did not bring real uh, development or change in our position in the citizenship. What makes me uh, worry about uh, this approach is that it's um, have surrounded to the idea of unequal citizenship. It's mainly what it says. We don't care about any of the issues that are happening in the Israeli society or practices that are done by the Israeli government as long as we get budgets to solve some of our everyday uh, problems. And if, if you remember, I just talked about how occupation and continuous occupation and right-wing policies are affecting our everyday life. After the law or, or, or the national uh, state law, Jewish national state law, Israeli parliament decided that there are two levels of citizenship in this country. There are the privileged who have the ownership over this state, which are the Jewish citizens. And we, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, are some kind of not equal citizens and not even fully citizens. The law denies our uh, relation to this homeland and making it only a Jewish homeland. So I cannot see how we can accept this approach and practice politics on the basis of this approach. It's like accepting the inferiority of our citizenship and working within this framework that was established in a discriminatory way 
and accepting it and saying, okay, we will be grateful as long as you make our ghetto looks better. Wow. I don't want to live in a ghetto. Let's start from that. I don't want to make it look better because the minute you work only to make, to make it look better, you are accepting the boundaries and you are accepting the uh, limits they are putting on you. And my rule is to challenge these boundaries and to say, if I'm a citizen, I have a say in everything that is happening in this country. So this is what I think about what is happening these days. Thank you. I appreciate your honest opinion. Now I'm gonna move us to the last question that I have here. Um, and usually I end it with a few things, like um, if you could maybe give a recommendation for an intellectual influence or a book or a movie that people could go check out. And then two, what kind of advice do you have for young women who are, thinking about becoming activists or and thinking about engaging in politics, but of course are aware of all the challenges. So what kind of advice do you have for them? Well, first of all, it's a difficult path to take. There are moments that you think that uh, you need to give up. There will be moments that it will be very difficult. I just passed in the last elections uh, one of those, not moments, but, but two months of attacks uh, that I'm sure any other politician uh, who was a man would, would not be attacked in this way. So you have to remind yourself in the most difficult times that they are doing this because you are making a difference. Because if you were not important enough, nobody will attack you. If you are not making changes and bringing a different view uh, and challenging them, they will never care about spending time attacking you. So probably you are doing something right. Continue to do it, even if everybody is angry about it. <laughs> Uh, this is what keeps me on going. And I think all of the women and, and any woman who wants to, um, a young woman who is thinking to be part of the political life, do it because you want to make a change, not because you want to make a career out of it. Career will never, you will never have out of that because we are part of a minority and we are fighting for uh, good causes and uh, it will be very difficult. A lot of money out of that is not going to be. So you need to, to have a vision. What do you want to change? And I'm always saying to the uh, young women, there's a difference between a leader and a star. The star is up there in the uh, sky, maybe will shine for one time or twice, but the daylight will come and the star will not be there. A leader is not a leader without people around him. 
or going after her or looking at her and saying, well, she's saying something important. Otherwise, you are not a leader. So be a leader, don't be a star. And then do you have any advice for what can our viewers read, listen to, uh, to educate themselves more on the issues we discussed today? Well, first of all, we have um, a lot of young people who are doing amazing work, producing uh, very nice art, and uh, not only nice, but also in bringing our issues. There are uh, uh, people like uh, Tamer Nafar, Jung, uh, the movie Junction 48. There are uh, songs and singers and artists who are doing really uh, nice work. I can't now yani, be specific uh, more, but uh, reading, oh mine. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things that can be read, but... Uh... Yeah, I think the artist's suggestion is more than enough for the purpose of this. I want to thank you very much for, uh, you know, coming and talking to me, taking the time out of your day to talk to me. I know it's very late now. <laughs> it's almost 11 o'clock, right? It's still early. Uh, <laughs> and it, you get used to staying up till 5 o'clock in the morning, so... <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you for that Anwar. and i want to thank our listening for uh, listeners for tuning in hopefully we'll get to talk to you again hopefully and i hope to see you when you come to visit yeah inshallah thank you thank you